You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, Adam and I sat down with two of our consultants, Robbie Sundberg and Caroline Willett, to talk about the new CECL standard. Robbie and Caroline have both taught this concept in several trainings and have some really great insight to offer about how this new standard may affect you and your business. Plus, we answer the question, if Cecil were a movie, what movie would it be and why? And you don't want to miss that. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, you can check out our blog post called Preparing for the Current Expected Credit Loss Model. I had a lot of fun recording this episode, even if my co-hosts and guests were giving me blank stares when I made jokes. But that's all right. All you need is one fan, and that fan is me. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode and learn something new. All right. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adam Olson. And today we welcome Robbie Sundberg, a senior manager, and Caroline Willett, a manager here at Embark, to discuss Cecil. Both Robbie and Caroline have done a deep dive into Cecil and taught several trainings over the topic. Welcome, guys. Hello. Thank you. Thanks. Before we dive in, I'd like to introduce a fun little segment that I like to call That Sounds Like, where we talk about the accounting acronyms and what they sound like before we talk about what they're actually referring to. So I've got a few, and if you guys have any, just jump in. All right, Cecil. Sounds like your mom's great uncle, Cecil, who lives up in Boston and talks about how good the Celtics were when Larry Bird was on the team. (laughs) Or Cecil, the name of your nephew's turtle that keeps dying, but his mom keeps replacing it because she doesn't have the heart to tell him that his turtle's dead. (laughs) Cecil the turtle. (laughs) Sounds personal, Sarah. (laughs) No, those are truly just made up. (laughs) The one that I had uh, was uh, that it sounds like uh, the hotel in the, the new Netflix docuseries that's, that's a little bit creepy. Yes, unless you have a British accent in which it's called Cecil. <laughs> that's right. Hey, you could call this Cecil. The acronym still works. All right, well, now that we know what Cecil isn't, Caroline, can you tell us a little bit about what Cecil actually is? Yeah, it's an acronym for current expected credit losses. And it's actually not the name of the standard itself, but it really just refers to the, the valuation model introduced in ASC 326. So it's a new model to estimate credit losses on financial instruments. And CECL model really just aims to more accurately reflect the collectability of, um, of financial instruments, like loans receivables, trade receivables, um, over the entire life of the asset. So it's a pretty significant project. Um, and has some pretty wide-ranging effects. So that's why we're talking about it. Okay. And why did we need a revised standard? During the financial crisis, it became pretty clear that the timing of uh, loss recognition and management's expectations of collectability was, they were inconsistent with each other. So under the incurred loss model, it had to be probable that the loss had already been incurred, um, regardless of future conditions or expectations. And so investors were just getting, you know, information too late to make any kind of decisions um, or timely decisions on, um, you know, financial statements. So CISA model is really intended to better align timing and management's expectations of collectability and just to give financial statement users more, more decision useful information. So, yeah. Awesome. So I know like 
just jumping in here real quickly that, you know, the CISL standard came out in 2016 originally. So it's been out for a number of years and companies have had, you know, been hearing about it. And obviously in 2020, this past year, it was required to be implemented for public companies. Um, but I, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, our private companies who have yet to mostly adopt CISL, a lot of them are thinking CISL sounds like it's more financial industry focused, you know, banks and lending industry, you know, lending institutions, things like that. Um, you know, I don't really have to worry about that. So, you know, from your experience, what would you say to companies like that? You know, what do they need to keep in mind um, as it relates to CISL, even though they may not be in those types of industries or institutions? Yeah, it, it's a good question because I think a lot of the initial focus was on those large financial financial institutions with you know, more complex portfolios, more, you know, different kinds of um, financial instruments. And so if you actually dig into the standard a little bit and you look at what's in scope, um, unless you operate, you know, entirely in cash transactions, you probably have some financial assets that will need to be evaluated. So if you have trade receivables, um, you'll, you'll need to uh, assess the allowance on those trade receivables using the CISO model going forward. So um, you know, loans receivables, corporate bonds that, you know, expect to be held to maturity, um, lease receivables on the lessor side for some sales type or direct financing type leases. I think, you know, all, all are in scope and all are things that companies need to be really assessing, even if you're not, you know, a large bank or, or a public issuer. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think it's, it's definitely something that, you know, private companies need to definitely keep in mind, although, evaluation may not be as complex as what, you know, they see those in the financial services type industries are going through. It's definitely um, still going to require some, some due diligence for sure. Uh, Maybe just switching gears here to Robbie real quick. So, you know, historically under GAP prior to Cecil, we had the incurred loss model, which everyone's pretty familiar with. Can you just maybe at a high level talk about uh, maybe some differences or how under CECL guidance, credit losses will now be recognized versus what people are used to? Sure. So uh, so as you, you just mentioned, uh, and Caroline mentioned as well, uh, Legacy Gap applied what was commonly referred to as the incurred loss model. Uh, and essentially, this meant that losses were recorded when it was probable that a loss had already occurred, uh, regardless of the likelihood that a loss uh, would occur in the future. So it didn't take into account you know, losses that would take Take, a, take place in the future. Uh, the CISO guidance, on the other hand, uh, does not contain any kind of a probability threshold uh, like was included in the, using the incurred loss model uh, and requires recognition even if the risk of loss is remote. So that's a significant change in terms of, in terms of recognition. Uh, under the CISO guidance on day one, so upon either the uh, acquisition of a financial asset or the origination of a financial asset, uh, a company uh, must estimate on that for initial day, uh, expected credit losses uh, and recognize an allowance for the expected loss at, at that point in time. Um, so uh, that's, a, that's a key difference. Another key difference uh, that is implied in what I described uh, is that Legacy Gap only looked at the past in determining the loss to be recognized, uh, but under the CECL guidance, the past, the present, and the future uh, all must be considered. So uh, that's a, that's a big change. Not just looking at the historical loss experience, but also looking at current conditions uh, and 
future uh, forecast, reasonable and supportable forecast is the way that it's, it's worded in uh, ASD 326. Uh, so all of those um, different factors need to be considered under this ESA model. So those are the, the, big, the big differences uh, from a model perspective. So maybe just to summarize, so like it's definitely an earlier recognition of credit losses. Like, you know, as we kicked off, that was kind of the importance of why we needed the standard was mm -hmm. the incurred loss model was too slow to react um, to potential losses. And so obviously that was impacting investors and things of that nature. Um, and then it's really okay. looking at that estimated loss over the, I guess, the life of the expected life of the asset itself. Um, so not just looking That's at right but really looking over that contractual term period or forecast period that, um, you know, for what the expected loss might be. That's right. So I guess uh, maybe like kind of building onto that a bit, uh, you know, how do companies actually come up with, you know, what their credit loss is? You know, maybe let's focus on more of the non-banking industry, take out some of the complexity that obviously, you know, the banking institutions obviously have more complex modeling and probably large teams helping work on this for a number of years, but maybe for your more run-of-the-mill um, products and services type industry company or something of that nature, like, you know, what, what would they need to think through when they're trying to figure out how do I apply Cecil and how would I model my credit losses under this guidance? Sure. So the first thing that I would say is that there's a lot of flexibility in terms of, of how they how they do that and the different options that they have. Um, the CISO model doesn't prescribe a specific way that, that they have to do that. So the CISO model provides some principles, some high-level principles for the types of things that must be considered, but they don't prescribe a way that it has to be done. So, so for example, I mentioned one of the previous questions that the estimate must incorporate the past, so your historical loss experience, as well as the current conditions, and then reasonable and supportable forecasts of the future. So, therefore, whatever model a company creates, they have to consider all of those, all of those things, right? So, flexibility in terms of way that it's done, but those particular pieces need to be present. And so, uh, some of the models that you'll see, um, specifically and especially with with non-banking uh, companies, and what, that we've seen with our with our clients as well, is that especially for, for non-banking clients, many of them will use an aging schedule-based approach or a, a vintage approach. We see this a lot because it applies largely to, to trade receivables um, in terms of application. And it's a popular approach because it's very similar to the approach that companies took to trade receivables under legacy gap guidance. And so uh, it's familiar. It's very similar to the way that they would have thought about calculating their allowance for doubtful accounts under under legacy gap. And so uh, so that's a very popular approach because it's familiar. Uh, many of the accounting processes are already set up to, to support it. Um, and so using an aging schedule, just to kind of, by way of kind of a little bit of an example or so, using an aging schedule, a company um, might have already compiled historical loss rates for its, for its trade receivables, but into various aging buckets. So you have your uh, your current receivables, your one to 30 days past due, 31 to 60, and, and so on. To that point, to, to a company, your process is going to look very similar to, to what you, you've always done um, with, with allowance for doubtful accounts. But the difference here uh, under CISO guidance is that you can continue to use this, this aging schedule-based approach, uh, but using your, your historical approach, you would just look at historical data, right? Um, under Legacy Gap, that's, that's what they would have done. Uh, but now a company... They'll continue to do that, but they need to layer onto that the 
the expectation for the future, right? What, what do they expect? What's that forecast look like into the future? Uh, and, and layer that on to their, uh, their aging schedule. Um, and so that's, that's the big change. And that, that's the model that I think we see most frequently, especially for uh, companies where their primary exposure to the standard is with trade receivables, because many of them already had a similar type of process in place for their, uh, for their trade receivables. And so the simplest way to sort of transition to the, to the new guidance is, is to layer on the additional requirements relative to the, to the current conditions and the, and the reasonable and supportable forecast of the future. So, uh, so that's perhaps the most common um, form for or model for, for non-financial institution type clients and companies. Uh, certainly other models are available and being used. So loss rate, probability of default, discounted cash flow. Many non-banking clients will apply those as well, especially to the extent that they have financial assets that are in scope that kind of fall outside of trade receivables, you know, different types of loans receivable or things like that, held to maturity, debt securities, those types of financial assets that they might hold in addition to trade receivables. They may apply a different model to those uh, just depending on uh, what makes sense for their specific situation. Yeah, yeah, no, that's helpful. I think, um, I guess in some of the examples that I've helped clients with over the last year, year and a half or so, you know, when I think about their their trade receivable analysis, for sure, they're starting with that historical aging incurred loss model, because, you know, in most cases, kind of your historical loss rate is your starting point. And then it's whether or not you need to adjust for anything based on current conditions. And and a lot of times I know, um, especially on the trade receivable side, when the, the life of the trade receivable is pretty short, you know, you got like a 30 day turn for your accounts receivable. You know, when you think about adding on that layer of a forecast period, it's, you know, the contractual term for that financial asset is pretty short. So um, I know a lot of companies are making the argument as well that there's um, not a material change for factoring in kind of a forecast period, but, you know, obviously, uh, 2020 was a was a bit of a, a new year with uh, COVID and things of that nature. So even shorter term, I know um, financial assets that were in scope for CISO also had to kind of take a, a deeper look at that to make sure that even in 30, 60, 90 days, um, especially as you know, customers maybe were slower to pay, um, whether that forecast assumption needed to be adjusted as well. Um, no, so that's that was definitely definitely a good summary there and good points to kind of keep in mind, especially as people are kind of thinking through, you know, where do I start? What do I need to do? Am I kind of completely starting from nothing here? Or, you know, what can we leverage from our existing processes? Um, right. I guess maybe one more thing to touch on with the CECL model. I know, um, you know, one of the other big changes here is that there's a there's a requirement in the standard that you have to pool your financial assets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some flexibility for how one company may or may not pool assets versus another um, in order to come up with a separate CECL estimate for each of those different pools. Um, can you talk a bit about just maybe how how the pools work, maybe how a company would, you know, determine what types of pools of financial assets they might segregate and then, um, you know, maybe any best practices or things that you've seen or heard um, for entities that are kind of going through this process for the first time? Yeah, yeah, no, this is a good topic to discuss as well. So unlike for legacy gap, the CECL model does require that uh, assets with similar risk characteristics be pulled together and evaluated together. Um, And so um, that's significant because, again, the requirements that they have to do that. um, So this isn't just an option um, under the guidance, but it's actually required. So 
again, the standard says that they that assets with similar risk characteristics need to be pulled together, but it doesn't say, um, which is kind of a theme, right? It doesn't say exactly what risk characteristics should be considered. So there's flexibility here as well. Um, it's something that, um, as you might expect, is going to be very company specific, and it's going to be even more so very uh, financial asset specific. Um, so uh, the guidance does, however, provide, which I think is very helpful, uh, some example risk characteristics. And there's actually quite a long list. Uh, if you go uh, look in ASC 326, it actually provides a, a, quite a long list of different um, options um, in terms of risk characteristics, but it's not all inclusive and it makes that very clear. Um, there's a lot of flexibility there, but just uh, some of the examples that it includes are things like credit scores, uh, risk ratings, uh, the type of financial asset, uh, different types of collateral, uh, the term of the financial asset, um, a variety of others, right? So there's, um, there's a lot of different risk characteristics um, that can be considered. Um, and really pulling of assets uh, really requires kind of taking a step back, looking at what drives the risk um, of loss associated with each of those financial assets that you hold, um, and seeing where um, where those kind of fit. So, uh, and I guess an important point too is that you don't have to pick one. It's not like you say, "Oh, I'm gonna I have to pick credit score," and I have to kind of split all of my pools by by credit score. Um, it's really you might have you know pool A is current trade receivables with a retail customer. Uh, in the U.S. And so there we've kind of taken three different sort of risk characteristics uh, and those three together make up make up our pool um, versus your, your second pool might be loans uh, with a, with a five year maturity uh, and borrowers with with excellent credit, for example. Um, and so you, you have these different pools made up of different risk characteristics, but um, but it's going to be very dependent upon the types of financial assets that a company has, the, the conditions that are in place uh, at the company, in the industry, uh, macroeconomically. There's a, there's a lot of things a lot of things to consider. And so from a from a best practices perspective, it's important to to remember that the risk pools may shift, right? Because um, what makes sense today from a risk characteristic perspective is likely to look different in five years um, or next year. Um, and so making sure you have kind of good governance in place to evaluate your pools and the right stakeholders providing input into that that discussion is is really important so that you can ensure that you're you're pulling your assets appropriately, putting assets together that that should be together because they they present the same kind of risk profile. Yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of a lot of flexibility here as well, right? It's companies looking at what which of these kind of risk characteristics are really their key drivers for their how they evaluate risk as an entity and so that's, you know, where the focus is and and like you said, they're not you know, they're definitely a static concept They're, you know, it's not, it's like a one and done assessment. So companies really need to make sure each reporting period, they're evaluating those pools, looking at them, making sure that the existing pool still makes sense or to the extent there's financial assets in a pool that don't fit. Um, it's either revising the pools or um, I know the standard even potentially talks about that um, a particular financial asset, maybe its own pool on it, you know, by itself. And so it's mm -hmm. that's right credit loss would be assessed on that individual um, asset. So um, definitely good reminder. Yeah, that's, yeah no, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, if it doesn't fit, yeah, it has to be evaluated on its own, which is perhaps what you might expect, but it's, a, it's an important point because you don't have to just fit it into another pool just because it doesn't have a, full, a pool to fit into, just evaluate it on its own if it doesn't fit uh, into the others. Awesome. Thanks, Robbie. Um, 
to elaborate a little bit more, we talked about there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of variety in developing the model, the allowance. And we talked about not focusing only on the past, also look at the present and the future. What are some other things companies should be thinking about as they're developing these estimates, like the term or potential recoveries? Is there anything else that should be top of mind? You know, one of the examples that you mentioned there was uh, contract, contractual terms. So we can talk about that first. So, and this has been, I think, brought up by several several of us kind of throughout this, but under the FISA guidance, a company is required to estimate losses over the entire contractual life of the financial asset. So um, as a result, as a general rule, uh, the longer the contractual term, uh, the larger your, your estimate uh, of the current expected credit losses will be. Um, and this is because as you go out into the future, uh, there's so much additional uncertainty that exists. Um, we kind of talked about this even in the case of like a, a trade receivable that's 30, you know, 30 days um, type of trade receivable. Well, you know, that doesn't go out very far. There's not a lot of uncertainty 30 days out, relatively speaking. Um, but um, if we're talking about a, a loan that has a 30 year term, well, there's, I don't know what, what the world's going to look like in 30 years. There's a lot of uncertainty um, associated with, with something that goes out 30 years, uh, especially relative to something that's 30 days. So generally speaking, the longer the term, the larger that estimate of expected credit losses is going to be. From a loss recovery perspective, um, there was actually some, just kind of by way of a little context here, so there's actually some initial confusion um, in the, some of the initial ASUs uh, related to the standard on this point. And the FASB clarified in 2019-04 uh, that uh, an entity should consider recoveries in its allowance for expected credit losses. Um, so it's important because it means that that entity should consider expected credit losses within the allowance for expected credit losses and should not directly write up the related costs. It also means that um, because an entity recognizes recoveries as an adjustment to the allowance, the allowance may have a negative balance uh, in certain situations where, uh, where there's been a, a write-off um, and a subsequent recovery. So, um, so import, really important um, kind of point here is that they should be considered um, in your, your estimate of expected credit losses. I think that might be the understatement of the century that 30 years is uncertain, but we'll have to wait 100 years <laughs> to find out. <laughs> 30 days uh, seems pretty yes. uncertain nowadays. <laughs> um, yeah, about, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> what about, does the model ever result in a zero loss being appropriate, or do you have to record a credit loss of some sort? So all financial assets that are in scope of the standard need to be evaluated for a credit loss reserve. So, um, so they should be evaluated. But with that said, it is possible to arrive at a credit loss estimate of zero, though the guidance does strongly suggest that that should be a, a somewhat unusual conclusion to, to reach. And so um, you shouldn't go out and um, just uh, assume that, well, I'm going to collect my money, so I, my, my reserve is, is zero. It should be very rare that you, you come to that conclusion, though it, it can happen. So maybe a, a common uh, or somewhat common situation where you might reach that conclusion is in the case of uh, something like treasury securities, where it's a very safe investment. Uh, it'd be reasonable, um, potentially, uh, depending on the facts and circumstances for a company to conclude that that, that particular asset um, has a risk of loss of zero. And so that um, that would be perhaps a reasonable conclusion to, to come to. But take, for example, collateralized assets. Um, I think that's an area where sometimes companies think that they can they can come to that zero conclusion simply because the, the current value of the collateral is, is greater than the financial asset that is, is collateralized. Um, and so 
so they might just say, well, I have this collateral that's worth $100,000 and my asset's only worth seventy-five, dollars so um, I don't need to record a credit loss because I have this collateral that's worth more. Um, the guidance is, is very clear that the current value of the collateral cannot be used as the sole basis for, for concluding on um, your, your expected credit losses. So, uh, so that's really important. Um, the collateral is an important aspect of this and it should be considered, uh, but it just, the, the current value of it in general, um, there's some exceptions, uh, some very narrowly defined exceptions in the standard, but generally speaking, uh, the, the current value of the, the collateral cannot be used as the, the sole basis. So um, you should also consider uh, the nature of the collateral uh, as well as kind of future changes that are expected in the value of that collateral. So, um, so collateral is important um, to consider, but um, it's, it's more, it goes deeper than just the, the current value of that collateral. Yeah, I'd probably just like add a quick uh, point to that as well. I think it's it's real important about the the measurement of the credit loss is that you know the standards are really specific that even if that risk of loss in that forecast period is remote, like the standard still requires you mm -hmm. to recognize a credit loss. So um, you know it's a very very low bar for having to record um, some type of expected credit loss on most of these financial assets and. Now, that's even the case for like corporate bonds that even maybe triple a rated like um you know you think those are you know highly rated financial um instruments but you know even looking at corporate bond studies you'll still see that there's even some small risk of loss across corporate bonds and so even in something that's as highly rated as a triple a bond would not necessarily be you know acceptable to have that zero loss kind of conclusion so it's it's in very limited circumstances as Robbie was suggesting. All right, maybe we switch gears and bring Caroline back into the, the fold real quickly. So we've talked a lot about the accounting, you know, how the models will work and kind of different ways you can apply the standard, but uh, maybe we can switch and talk a little bit about how um, applying CISO will impact, you know, companies' financial reporting, you know, particularly on the balance sheet and the income statement, um, you know, what does the application of CECL look like um, within the financial statements? What can what can preparers expect? Yeah, so on the balance sheet, um, you'll present the in-scope financial asset at amortized cost, and then the allowance for credit losses will be presented separately as a contra asset. And you actually do this for each group of you know, financial assets or in-scope um, financial instruments that you're presenting. So, for example, if you if you have loans and leases, um, and you're uh, you have one allowance for credit losses on those, you know, that group, you present that. And then, if you had a separate um, allowance for your trade receivables, for example, and you um, you're evaluating those differently. Uh, you would have a separate, you know, trade receivables line, separate contra asset for your allowance for trade receivables. And then on the income statement, you'd present your your credit loss expense for that period. So what about, I mean, obviously new standard, we talked a lot about assumptions and things that companies have to think through, especially evaluating risk and things of that nature of their financial asset portfolio. Like what do disclosures look like under the standard? I, you know, are we looking at more expanded disclosures, more limited, kind of what's the direction that the, the FASB took with um, the issuance of this ASU? I mean, the majority of the disclosures are consistent with what was required under 
legacy gap. So things like, you know, what you would have previously disclosed for your allowance for, for doubtful accounts, you know, if you have, um, if you have uh, credit quality information, um, any PCD assets that you have, all of those things are consistent with legacy kind of disclosure requirements. Um, the, the new piece that's required is that there is a, a roll forward um, for the allowance for doubt or the allowance for credit losses that's required now. And then really just a, a qualitative description of management's estimate. Um, and this is really just consistent with most disclosures about management estimates. So what are the inputs? Um, what was the methodology that management used? And then if it if the if the estimate changed, you know, what factors led to that change? Um, so just some qualitative disclosures around that, consistent with, you know, um, you know, other other standards um, that involve management estimates. So nothing too crazy. Well, that's good to hear. Um, and then how would a transition work? So an entity that's looking in, you know, to adopt or implement CECL, you know, we got, like we mentioned at the top of this, that private companies, you know, they still have a little runway before they have to get this into their financials. Um, but when it comes time for transition, how does that work in transitioning from kind of the old incurred loss model to applying CECL? Yeah. So the, the transition method for most of the in-scope assets is a modified retrospective approach. So that'll be, you know, cumulative effect adjustment to opening retained earnings um, in the period of adoption. Um, there are a few in-scope um, debt securities or PCD assets is another example um, where the perspective method is used. But I'd say the vast majority in these instances would be the modified retrospective approach. Okay. And then again, for private entities, when is this effective? When do they need to worry about this or calendar year in? Q1 2023. So not right around the corner, but, you know, never hurts to get a jump on things here. Um, so maybe yeah. just like rounding out, you know, here a few more questions just on the topic. You know, for you guys that have you know, been working with clients on Cecil, you know, what are some challenges that you saw, especially, you know, private companies, excuse me, public companies went through this last year, um, implementing it, obviously, in the kind of wave of the pandemic with a million other things going on. So it was definitely a lot, a lot stacked up against most um, preparers and accountants um, trying to implement a, a new, a new standard as well. Um, what were some challenges you guys saw or, or heard about um, that, you know, you should keep in mind or kind of look out for um, as we get, you know, private companies start to look towards adoption. I'll go first. So I think, okay. I think um, just generally kind of consistent with any first, first year of adoption, um, just the question of, you know, what's too much versus what's too little. Um, and really just kind of keeping with the, um, you know, the intent of the standard. So, Using this year as an example, you know, issuers probably had some difficulty, um, especially if they had a calendar year end, you know, how around December is when, um, you know, the vaccines uh, in the U.S. were, two of them were, um, were uh, authorized. So how much longer do you consider COVID as part of your reasonable and supportable forecast? Um, how much do you disclose about how much that affected your, your forecast? 
Um, so I think certainly this year was an interesting year for, for it to be, um, you know, the adoption, the first adoption year. So I would say um, that was probably a pretty difficult um, consideration, kind of a complicating factor in 2020 for sure. Yeah, I guess what I'd add is that um, the, the challenge that, challenges that are faced are very much, I think, dependent on, on the company and the financial assets that they hold. Um, so I, I think um, oftentimes one of the challenges is kind of the new piece, right? Because they've, a lot of times they've, companies have already been, have already considered historical loss experience um, as part of, for example, the allowance for doubtful accounts. But the, the new piece is um, that reasonable and supportable forecast um, and, and the current conditions as well. So um, understanding what inputs um, to, con- to include uh, in that forecast, um, setting up their, their processes to be able to support um, inclusion of those new, those new inputs, putting uh, new controls around, um, around that, those altered processes. I think that's where, um, that's where there's been challenge, um, especially when it's a, a non-banking client where they primarily have trade receivables as their exposure to the to the new standard, and so um, so that's where I've seen the challenges that they face simply because that's that's really what's changed for them. They're still able to, um, especially if they already had a robust um, kind of uh, aging process um, that they were using to evaluate their their trade receivables, they're really just layering in those, those additional pieces and putting processes and, uh, and controls around, around those. Uh, I guess one implication to, from a, I mentioned controls briefly there. One additional piece there is that even when these companies have, have used an aging schedule based approach, oftentimes they're, they're looking at all of their, their trade receivables uh, that fall into these aging buckets, but there may be some additional requirements under C still to kind of disaggregate those assets further because um, there's other risk characteristics that are relevant besides just the age of uh, of the financial asset or that of that trade receivable. And so, um, so that may be another change in their process, right? And so, uh, so that's another just as an example of a, of a challenge that a company's going to face as they're um, looking to implement the standard is is how do they alter their existing process because they already have the the process in place, but now they need to disaggregate further um, and look at the forecast, right? So, um, so those are the challenges that, that I've seen. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I think um, oftentimes we always focus on the accounting and kind of forget about the internal control environment and making sure that um, processes and related controls have been kind of spruced up to, to address as well the changes in the standards. So, you know, like you mentioned, obviously pooling's new, so additional processes around reviewing pooling of financial assets, and then you think about you're adding forecasting in here and probably review controls around those forecasts mm-hmm. and that nature. So, so definitely good points to, to keep in mind for sure. I guess I'll kick it to Sarah maybe to, to close us out with one final question. Yeah, to round us out with the question on everyone's mind, I'm sure. <laughs> if the Cecil standard were a movie, what movie would it be and why? So I said Inception because, you know, you can go down all these layers um, into the standard and get really complicated. But these people in Inception always have kind of a tell that lets them know whether they're kind of in reality um, or in a dream. So <laughs> I would just, you know, I think that's important for management companies who are considering this, especially private, private entities. Just have your tell whenever you're looking at, at CECL. Um, and for me, usually the tell is kind of what was the intent uh, and are you in line with, with kind of the FASB's intent for, 
um, for the standard. So that was mine. Okay. Okay. I like that. Um, also a great movie, by the way, one you can watch over and over, no doubt about it. Um, I still don't know what happened, but I'm still trying to yeah. figure it out. That, um, I was just in such <laughs> I still don't know what happened. I still try to figure it out. <laughs> when I was thinking about this, so I was thinking it would have to be a movie that one, you have no choice but to watch, right? We all got to <laughs> do this Cecil thing, right? So, uh, so that'd be one, uh, requires you to plan in advance to get prepared. Three, something that has its ups and downs, maybe a little bit painful even uh, to get through, just like implementing any new any new standard. Uh, but then at the end, if you plan correctly, do all these things, you're gonna have a sort of a happy ending, triumphant end uh, to the to the whole thing. And so that's kind of what I was thinking through as I thought about you know what movie. So with that in mind, uh, I said maybe Force Gump. And so so here and here hear me out. Uh, Forrest Gump's a classic. It is a classic. It is a culturally important uh, movie that that everyone's got to watch. If you haven't seen it, it's been out for 25 years, so you should go watch it. Um, <laughs> and uh, going in, the, the thing is, going in, you know, you know, it's going to be a tearjerker, right? Especially if you've seen it before. And again, you should if if you haven't, because it's been around a long time. So it's going to be a tearjerker. So you know, you got to make sure you have a plan. You got to come in with some tissues. Uh, maybe a, a blanket to hide your tears because you're definitely going to cry in the movie. Uh, no, again, no doubt about that. Um, as you go through the movie, there's, there's so many ups, ups and downs, right? Like he's, uh, you know, Forrest is a ping pong champion and this is his great high. And then there's all these devastating things that happen. Um, again, if you haven't seen it, try not, not try not to spoil anything for you, but you should have seen <laughs> it. Um, and, uh, but there's all these ups and downs, um, you know, throughout the movie. Uh, but at the end, as you kind of get to the end, there's a sense in which you can kind of see that the bright future that exists, um, not for all the characters in the movie. So it's not perhaps a, a perfect fit because Forrest Gump kind of has a little bit of a sad ending too. Um, but uh, Cecil doesn't have to, uh, you know, if you're if you're stepping through all of the things that we talked about um, and, and some of the other things um, that, that should be considered, um, you know, Cecil uh, can have a have a happy ending as well. As, as you go forward. Um, so I say Forrest Gump, not a perfect uh, comparison, but um, also just a, another great movie, so. Yeah, and just like Mama said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get, <laughs> so you better reserve for it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All Love right, it. well, as always, there's so much more we could do to cover this topic, but we will put links to additional resources in the show notes so that our viewers and listeners who want to know more can go and find out some of that stuff. Um, thank you, Robbie and Caroline, Adam, you as well for joining and dropping all your knowledge bombs on us today. Um, and thank you to everyone for tuning in. We hope you found this discussion helpful. We look forward to having you join us again on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.